Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, editor-in-chief of No Film School. I'm John Fusco, producer at No Film School. Uh, I'm Charles Hain, tech writer at No Film School. It is October 6th, 2016, and on this week's show, we'll talk about virtual reality's impact on Nazi war criminals, New York City's groundbreaking film fund, the most exhaustive lens test we've ever seen, tips on how to prepare for life as a freelancer, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. We're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. We'd like to start out by wishing a Shana Tova, a sweet new year, to our Jewish listeners. And you know what? Not just our Jewish listeners. Everyone is entitled to a sweet 5777. We are wrapping up our hardcore festival month this week, or month plus. Uh, we've spent the past week and will be for the rest of this week at the New York Film Festival in our own uh, front yard, I guess. Um, we've gone to all sorts of things at the festival and are covering them for you guys. We'll have a piece on uh, talk with Barry Jenkins, who directed Moonlight. I put something up with Ava DuVernay from her new documentary, 13th, which opened the festival. Uh, we've got a piece from Allison McLean of The Rehearsal. I'm going to a Jim Jarmusch masterclass tonight, so I'm really excited about that, and I'll have something up later this week. John, have you seen anything at the festival worth chatting about? Um, Nothing really worth chatting about yet. Uh, I saw the rehearsal um, last week, and I wrote that up, so you can check out a little write-up I did on the Q&A afterwards. Um, that's about it. I saw another movie that I really didn't care for, so I won't talk about it, but I'm excited to see a few this week, um, seeing The Death of Louis XIV and Aquarius, which I hear really good things about. So looking forward to that. I actually went with Emily to see Moonlight, the Barry Jenkins film that she's writing up. And I was so happy to finally see it because we've mentioned on the show a at a couple of the festivals, it was like one of the big talked about films this year. And I can see why it'll definitely stick with me for a while. It was a little bit like um, Boyhood in that it followed one young man through kind of three major segments of his life. But it was very ambitious and sort of masterfully done. You all should definitely look out for Moonlight and for the write-up on it. So for our headlines this week, I always love stories where films help make actual social change, whether by bringing evidence to light that gets wrongfully convicted people released from prison, like a lot of these kind of true crime docs have been doing recently, or like social movements gaining momentum because a film helps people care about the issues that it covers. And we've heard these stories a lot, but now there's a new twist on this theme with virtual reality. So there's already a theory among VR advocates and practitioners that calls virtual reality an empathy machine because it literally puts viewers into someone else's shoes or at least seeing directly through someone else's eyes. But in this case, VR is being used as a practical tool in and of itself in a major criminal case. In fact, one of the most major criminal cases of all time. It's being used by Germany to round up the last living Nazi war criminals seven decades after World War II. So this guy called Rolf Breker, who clearly is German, um, his actual job is Bavarian State Crime Office Digital Imaging Expert, which like seems like a thing that would only exist on CSI. 
but it's real. And he made this virtual replica of the notorious Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp using thousands of authentic photographs as well as other physical models of the place. And it's like in a, a VR headset and they're using this VR model against suspects who claim that they worked at Auschwitz, but they didn't actually know what was going on. Because basically now the people judging in court can see through these VR goggles exactly what that guard might have seen back in the day in Auschwitz. So it can be used as a basis to decide whether there was any way that that person could not have known, for example, about the gas chambers. So it already helped uh, convict one former guard for being complicit in the mass murder of 170,000 people in Auschwitz. So while many media projects have helped convict people in the court of public opinion, for better or for worse, this technology is helping to convict people in actual court. So it'll be interesting to see if other cases employ these methods in the near future or if filmmakers will use VR, you know, in such a way. On a happier note, as you all know, we're based in New York and we love New York and we've posted, you know, big ups about New York from other filmmakers, even Aaron Sorkin, who spoke on his Reddit AMA about why New York is better than L.A. for film and television makers. And now there's even more reasons to love it and to consider basing your next production here if you're a woman or making work about or for women. Last week, the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment, or MOM, became our country's first ever municipal office to launch a series of programs specifically aimed at addressing gender inequity in the film, theater, and television world. So as such, they've started a five-part program that will support both indie and more mainstream productions, including a $5 million women's fund for film and theater that will give cash grants to film and theater projects by, for, and about women over five years. They'll also have a script writing competition, a film finance lab, a couple of women-focused docu-series on uh, public television here, and an official study on women in the industry. We have more details about the various programs on the Post on No Film School about this project, and we'll keep you posted when the office releases details about how you can apply and how your projects can benefit from these initiatives. In the meantime, um, thank you, New York, for putting your money where your mouth is, and we hope that other cities will follow suit. And in news from one of the few festivals that we haven't gone to in the past three weeks, Fantastic Fest just wrapped up in Austin this week. If you're not familiar with the festival, it's the largest genre-driven festival in the country, and it features standouts from this year's best horror, fantasy, sci-fi, action, and just crazy comedy midnight movies from all around the world. It could be known as the Geeks Tell You Ride. That's funny. Yeah, I saw that. Variety said that, I think, um, a while ago about the festival. At this point, the festival season is pretty much coming to an end for this year, so this features the best of the weirdest, I'd say, from all the festivals this year. It takes place at the Alamo Draft House in Austin and is sort of one of their one of their claims to fame, I'd say, at this point. This year's audience award went to the Walk Hollywood crime action flick Bad Black, directed by Nabwana IGG. And if you're not familiar with Walk Hollywood, it's sort of a subsect of African filmmaking. IGG and his crew of self-taught filmmakers and kung fu aficionados have made dozens of action films in the ghetto outside Kampala, Uganda for budgets of 200 US dollars. And they use all these sort of uh, props that they make from scrap metal, from whatever whatever's lying around, and just like really basic but endearing CG effects. And I haven't actually seen any with Hollywood crime dramas or action movies yet, but... 
the fact that this won an audience award at Fantastic Fest over a lot of other standouts from, you know, Arrival to uh, Colossal, it's, it's pretty impressive and it makes me interested in the genre. That is so badass. Do you have any idea where people can see any Wook Hollywood films? Um, I'm sure if you look online, honestly, like you could find some. I don't think that there's any real sort of privacy or copyright being held on a lot of these films. See if you can find any. The director's name, again, is Nabwana IgG, and he's a very famous director within this genre. The best horror film went to The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which was directed by Andre Overdahl, who also directed Troll Hunter. Julia Ducarno won Best Director in the New Wave competition for her cannibal movie, Raw, which Emily talked a little bit a few podcasts ago. It prompted fainting at the Toronto International Film Festival midnight screenings. I've been hearing so much about this movie since TIFF. It seems like it was one of the films that stuck most with people, um, I guess for good reason, because it's supposed to be just completely nauseating. It also won third place in the audience awards at Fantastic Fest. Best feature went to Nacho Vagalondo's crazy Anne Hathaway turning into a kaiju movie, Colossal, which I mentioned as one of the movies I was most upset I missed out on at TIFF. So it just made me more excited to see it. And other standouts included the Australian comedy Down Under, Villeneuve's Arrival, which many people are saying is the best film of the year, Nick Pesh's The Eyes of My Mother. I interviewed him at Sundance earlier this year. And of course, this year's festival darling, American Honey. Pivoting to gear news, uh, we're going to kick off with the Vintage Cinema Lens Library doing the most exhaustive lens test we've ever seen. Lens tests are really hard. I spent like 12 weeks shooting lens tests once and we made it through 12 sets of lenses and we only did one focal length of each. And the logistical and execution nightmare of getting a lot of different types of lenses all in the same place at the same time and ensuring that you have consistency throughout exposure for the whole range when different f-stops let through different amounts of lights for every lens it's like a cluster bang and the vintage cinema lens library did an amazing job i've never seen a lens test this thorough or this consistent and uh they're really informative you can can ta- we just take a quick step back? Is, sure. is a lens test like a way to test a bunch of different lenses against each other in the same conditions? So what the Vintage Cinema Lens, uh, lens Library did is they set up one scene, one actress, one set of lighting, and then they kept the camera in the same position and they switched in between all of the lenses and shot. Then they had like a moving flare light was the only thing that was moving in the frame through uh, all of the focal lengths for all of the set of lenses that they could get their hands on. So the whole point was to compare, you know, because you're constantly hearing like, ooh, Cooks are so creamy and Zeiss is so sharp. Mm. But like until you've actually seen the same thing shot with Cook and Zeiss, you can't really tell if like one, like there's all sorts of things that can make your image look creamy. So uh, this was a way of really getting down to brass tacks, everything's the same sensor, it's all the same scene and lighting, here's every different lens for that mm. one scene. Cool. Yeah, it's amazing and impressive, and it was a tremendous amount of work. They've built a very nice interface where you can choose to compare specific different lenses against each other with the interface. And uh, I think every filmmaker should be really grateful for these guys for doing such a thorough job. 
And uh, I can't wait for the next one. I'm looking forward to you guys doing Anamorphic sometime real soon. So, sorry, is that like a is that online that people? So can... it's on their website, but you can also download the original R3Ds. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm going to be arranging, I think, a screening with some students just so we can see it projected in 4K. Because mm-hmm. you know, if you're thinking about shooting your movie and finishing 4K, you want to see it on the big screen too. Um, but you know, if you're finishing your film on the web, it's still sort of. You know, especially if you're doing a commercial or music video, it's still kind of cool to be like, oh, wow, the Master Prime really looks wildly different than the Koa, mm. even at Vimeo resolution on the web. Mm-hmm. So it's all on the web right now, but you can download the R3Ds if you want to pull it up in 4K at home. Cool. Next up, Venus Optics teases a very different macro lens. So Venus Optics, their founding mission was macro lenses. Like, in their About page, they talk about their love of macro lenses. And they're, of course, really famous now for making the Lawa series of Cinema Primes. They do great lenses. But macro is the thing that got them started. And uh, they have come out with a very interesting macro for uh, Nikon and Canon mount. It's a two-to-one macro, which means that the object, in reality, is going to be twice as big on the sensor. So if you have like an 18 millimeter across American dime, which is our smallest American coin, it's going to be 36 millimeters wide on your sensor, which is going to fill a full frame sensor, which is like an incredibly close up view of a subject. Of course, to get that kind of macro at an affordable price, there's going to be some sacrifices. The lens only opens to a 14, which is very slow. But on the flip side, with a really small subject, it's easy to get a lot of light in there. And uh, the other drawback is the lens itself is nearly two feet long. Venus is claiming this is a benefit since if you're like shooting an ant or like a spider that's very shy, the lens can get up close without you having to get up close. I don't think it's always going to be convenient to have a two foot long lens, but uh, for certain kinds of things, I think this lens is going to have a lot of really cool applications and uh, it covers uh, full frame imagery. So run around with your 5D Mark IV, throw the uh, the new 2 to 1 macro on, and you're going to get some amazing stuff. Final gear news of the week, uh, Tascam wants to change the way we record lavalier audio. Tascam, who are giants in the audio field, they make recorders and microphones and mixers, and they make all sorts of stuff. They just came out with a lavalier microphone for under 200 bucks, which is pretty cool since most quality lavaliers are around three times that, but that's not the really cool part. The cool part is that instead of broadcasting over wireless, it records locally. I like this story because it's one of those weird times where tech moves backwards. Like, the whole story in tech is like, wireless, and your data's on the cloud, and nothing is stored locally, and that's the future, and like that's the whole story arc of Silicon Valley. But unfortunately, the wireless audio spectrum is really full. So if you've ever done a job where you're recording wireless audio in any kind of dense environment, like a city or near a highway, you always get dropouts. You're always worried about your audio quality for wireless. It's never something you can feel totally confident in. And a lot of filmmakers, if they are doing wireless, they're always sure to have a couple of wired backups in some way because the wireless spectrum is full. And it's a bigger problem with audio than video because with video, If you lose a little bit of the frame, you can always play that frame twice. And if it's not an important part of the frame, you won't really notice. But audio dropouts are really obvious. So Tascam took advantage of the fact that recorders are now really small and they built the recorder into the little belt pack. So on a AAA battery, you can get half a day's worth of runtime where you literally just turn it on record and it runs all day. 
and uh, change the batteries at lunch. You get a second half of the day after lunch. It would be great at live events like weddings. It'd be great on film shoots. It's like a really great way of thinking about things. And sure, it's a little bit of a step back. We're not using the wireless technology that's there. Um, but considering how easy it is to sync your audio and posts in Premiere or Resolve or using tools like Pluralize, I, and considering it's only $200, I think you're going to see a lot of this on film sets, and uh, I think it's pretty cool. And now we're moving to our upcoming deadlines for grants and festivals and other events. We have some really cool deadlines this week, some really cool opportunities. The first being sort of a dream, I think, for anyone the Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellowship, which has a deadline on October 11th. The Fulbright National Geographic Storytelling Fellowship is a component of the Fulbright U.S. Student Program. It provides opportunities for U.S. citizens to participate in an academic year of overseas travel and storytelling in one, two, or three countries on a globally significant theme. So that's important because you can't I guess you can just do one, but it it sounds like National Geographic is looking for someone who's interested in covering stories that range over multiple countries. Applications for the 2017 to 2018 academic year will be accepted for the following themes. Our Human Story, which includes themes of culture, geopolitics, contemporary social issues, democracy and human rights, and religious freedom, critical species, which consists of themes under conservation of species and extinction, and New Frontiers, whose themes include innovations in areas of health, medicine, technology, energy, and economic development and prosperity. This fellowship is open for a number of different mediums for storytelling. So you can literally do a project based on text, photography, video, audio podcasts, public speaking, maps, graphic illustrations, and or social media. You'll be sharing your stories and the stories of those you meet on National Geographic platforms, including a dedicated program blog. In addition to receiving Fulbright benefits for travel, stipend, health, etc., and materials and reporting special allowance, storytellers will receive instruction in storytelling techniques, including effective blog writing, video production, photography, and other relevant training by National Geographic staff prior to their departure. National Geographic will also provide editorial mentorship for storytellers during their Fulbright grant period. I mean, this is awesome. It sounds like the most educational experience anyone interested in international documentary filmmaking could possibly have. Like you're learning from the best, you're getting fully funded for it, and you can use any number of the tools at your disposal to create a very compelling story. You basically get like a year-long job being a journalist at National Geographic, and I'm super jealous of any of you who have an idea that would let you apply. If you get this, you have to write for us on No Film School about your experience. John, is this only for students? Um, you know, it says all U.S. citizens. I know that the Fulbright Scholarship is um, open for people that are sort of in between, I, I think, undergrad and grad. I had a friend who won the Fulbright and went to Brazil for a year to work on a book, um, and he wasn't in school at the time. So I think that's probably based off of the Fulbright's regulations, but it says candidates must have completed at least an undergraduate degree by the commencement of the program, but may not hold a PhD at the time of application. And more in the documentary world, uh, Eurodoc 2017 has an application deadline of October 14th. If you're looking to pitch your documentary to Europe's leading commissioning editors, this networking workshop could be for you. 
So if you're selected for this, um, it can be very useful for meeting potential future partners to understand where they're coming from. So people like broadcasters or institutions that fund docs. It's designed for European producers with real international potential, but it's open to American directors as well. They pay special attention to the quality of the project and its international potential, the quality of the candidate and his or her track record, evaluation of language skills, so English and or French are mandatory, and ensuring a good balance between different European countries. And here's some festival deadlines to look out for next week. The Visions du Riel. My Swiss is terrible, so pardon me. Um, the deadline is Monday, October 10th. This festival runs from April 21st to April 29th, 2017 in Nyon, Switzerland. The Visions du Riel is one of the only Swiss film festivals to present a majority of its films as world or international premieres. It also offers the unique opportunity to meet the film directors, which are present at each first screening of the films. The festival is mostly a stepping stone for new talent. The prestigious Oscars and the European Film Awards Academies have opened their doors to films screened at Visions du Riel. Alongside a very varied program, the festival also offers masterclasses, debates with film directors, meetings with professionals, and many cultural mediation activities. And like Eurodoc, the festival also has a film market, the Doc Outlook International Market. It's one of the most important in Europe. It selects and promotes films at every stage of their development and offers a key networking platform for professionals from all around the world. And I guess docs are the theme of this entire section because one of the U.S.'s most prominent documentary festivals, the True False Festival, has their deadline on October 11th. Uh, it takes place in Columbus, Missouri, of all places. It focuses on nonfiction filmmaking as an artistic and creative form. The festival's in early March, 2nd to 5th, 2017. And basically, they, they're specifically trying to create a supportive, celebratory refuge for filmmakers and amplify the possibilities of creative nonfiction. A lot of uh, documentary filmmakers that I know really love to go to this festival because it's, it's sort of especially designed to celebrate and, and nurture documentary film. It's open to all works of nonfiction cinema, but they highly encourage chimeric works Wow, the fact that they even use the word chimeric in their materials tells you something. I'm not yeah, sure what, but it's, it's impressive. It seems like they're really interested in movies that sort of straddle the line between nonfiction and fiction, which is a really unique festival. I don't I don't I couldn't really think of many types of those movies off my head. I don't know, but it sounds like it sounds like you know, like mockumentaries or narrative movies that are sort of driven to look like documentaries, which I've I've seen a lot of sort of recently. Yeah, I feel like there's this sort of trend of hybrid type films. Also, this might appeal to some of you. Unlike a lot of the documentary focused festivals, it doesn't give extra points to quote unquote important messages or stories. So you might just have a character based documentary or something that's not about a social issue. And this would be a great platform for you to introduce that film. Yeah. And again, it just seems like they value creativity over anything else, which is pretty cool. Another cool thing on the filmmaker front is that they require attendance by filmmakers for every feature that they have in their program, but they pay for you to come. So in addition to a filmmaker stipend, they cover your airfare and lodging. Woohoo! We are so all for that. And for Ask No Film School this week, we have a question from Tommy Plusky who asks... Moving from doing free work to charging clients is a delicate yet inevitable process. How do you charge clients for your creative work? I know it depends on the country, experience, portfolio, currency, etc., but I'd like to hear what your approach is. 
So, Liz and Charles, what do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question, and I'm glad you asked because I think it's faced by a lot of people in our community. I myself worked freelance for almost 10 years, so I do have some experience here. Um, and there are a lot of elements to consider. So it's good that you're not just thinking about what to charge, but the sort of other steps like what goes into a contract and that kind of thing. Um, we're assuming that you're a camera person, even though you didn't specifically say so in your question, Tommy. Um, but because we're not sure, I'm first going to just talk about general freelancing elements. So for one thing, you asked about whether or not to use a contract. And I would say, absolutely. I mean, no one's going to protect you but you. So you always want to have some kind of contract or something in writing. Even if it's just an email, that can still be kind of used to show that you had a written agreement with the person or with the with the client. Um, and that contract, again, should protect you. It should contain things that will look out for your best interests. You should get paid something up front, like a percentage of the entire cost of the project or just like a flat fee. Um, and your contract should contain something that's called a kill fee so that you get some money for your saved time, like the time that you were saving to work for them um, and for prep time that you put in, even if the project gets killed. Of course, what to actually charge is a big matter. Um, and I have to say that I diverge from some of the answers on our boards uh, in this case because uh, it was really great that a lot of people responded to you. Um, and I really appreciate that about our community. But I thought that the, the rates people were putting on the no film school boards were pretty low. Um, so backing up, standard practice is to charge a day rate for your services rather than an hourly rate. Um, and you can charge an additional rental fee as well if you're using your own gear. And then you can use that day rate to negotiate some kind of discounted package for the project if it's going to be many days. So if you're like, you know, my normal day rate is X, but I know that, you know, we have X number of shooting days on this project, so I'll cut you a deal and I'll give you a rate of X per week, for example, which might be a little less than if your day rate um, just added up per day. And that's up to you. You know, you don't have to give people a break. You can sort of charge them on the high end and see what they say. Um, on a side note, I was I spoke on a panel earlier this year about kind of the freelance hustle and how do you how do you make it work and. One of my fellow panelists, a female DP, said that um, she always feels like she failed if a client immediately accepts her bid because that means she probably bid too low and she could have gotten away with um, potentially charging more and having them ask her to lower it. So just starting out, you'll more likely get work as an AC than as an actual DP. I did hiring as a producer at my last production company right before starting here at No Film School. And I also reached out to a couple of producer friends here in New York to kind of confirm these rates. So in bigger cities like this one, for corporate shoots, more experienced DPs get about $1,500 a day. ACs get about $750. For like an indie documentary, for example, it might be more like the DP gets seven to nine hundred dollars a day, and the AC gets three to five hundred. Um, but those are some, you know, kind of mid to high end ranges to give you a sense of what you might be able to ask for once you really get moving in the industry. Going off what Liz said, I love the quote from her uh, DP uh, co panelist or friend who said, uh, "You always should feel a little bad if." if the first number you give is immediately agreed to, because yeah, that is a really good sign that you're asking for too little. You know, the old expression is you never get more than you ask for. And I found that to be true. I once got more than I asked for, but other than that, yeah, whatever you ask for is the highest you'll end up getting. It can sometimes be tough to get to a living rate that way. 
Um, especially when you remember that a lot of times when we talk about these numbers, we're talking about jobs where you only get paid for the shoot day, but you don't get paid for the prep or you don't get paid for the returns. So once you spread some of these numbers over like three or four days, it's not nearly as uh, generous a pay as it initially seems. My usual advice when people ask me this question is when you are first starting, take a number that seems crazy and double it and ask for that because film industry rates are a little higher than you might be used to if you're coming from another industry. So I don't think I'd ever made, you know, when I first started out, I don't think I'd ever made more than like 25 or 30 an hour at anything. And then uh, my first job, I got 40 an hour. And at the end of the job, the producer took me aside and said, no one else will ever tell you this, but I should have paid you 80 an hour, but you didn't know any better. And uh, then I started asking for 80 an hour. <laughs> um, so, the film industry, definitely some of the hourlies are better and you have to ask for it. And usually what I tell people is ask for more than you think you're going to get and let yourself get talked down. Uh, keep doing that to find your rate until you're so busy and then up your number again. And uh, whenever you're fine. I'll just mm-hmm. jump in and say you can vary your rate from there depending on how badly you want the job. Yeah. So if it's a corporate client and you think it's going to stink, you charge super high, and that gives you wiggle room to charge a little less for indie projects that you might really care about. Totally. And that goes back to the whole thing that I always talk about of there's like ambition work and then there's like rent paying work. And like there's nothing wrong with taking a corporate job for a higher rate and then you have your passion projects and sometimes you do those for less and i think that is totally valid the flip side of everything i just said is that when you are getting 150 dollars an hour it's up to you to make sure the client are getting that much value so if they're doing a job and it's a commercial and it's going to be shown a lot of places and they're paying you 150 dollars an hour to color it or to edit it you better be contributing $150 an hour worth of value to that commercial. So as your rate goes up, and even in the beginning, when your rate is relatively low, be sure you're giving everything you can to make sure that that money is valuable to the client, and then they'll be willing to come back again and again. The hardest thing about breaking into the film industry is that a client has no incentive to switch to a new vendor if they're getting good work from their last vendor. So to become that new vendor, to get a crack at it's hard because usually the last person doing the job for them did a good job. But once you get in there, be sure you keep the client. Yeah, you can be that person that they don't want to replace. So thank you so much for the question, Tommy, and best of luck. And now moving on to the important series and movies that are opening this week. Vice News Tonight, which we talked about a little bit on a previous show, premieres this Sunday, October 10th on HBO. They already have one show on HBO, an entire network, and now they're starting this nightly news show. So my question is, where does it end for Vice as far as news content? Liz, you talked about it last time a little bit. Do you have anything you want to say as to why this is sort of a unique venture for Vice, aside from the fact that it's nightly? Yeah, I mean, I can make the same point I did then, which is basically like, we've all talked about Vice's controversies here and even like their content you know, over the years has been has has been at times wildly offensive. But I think, you know, at this point, they've scooped up so many of the big players and like more interesting edgy people in both the indie world and the news world. And Spike Jones is still their director of video advice. And he's, you know, one of our heroes here at No Film School. And so, you know, the news industry now is so kind of 
messed up, I think, that if they can offer a unique voice in that mix and and bring kind of an indie filmmaker sensibility to the news and pursue truth in the way that they have uh, in recent years, especially with their HBO longer format news magazine show, I think it bodes really well. I'm actually really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. For me, the question is, why do they choose to place their content where they choose to place it? Why put this nightly news show on HBO rather than on their new Viceland channel? Or why wouldn't they put it on both maybe? But I guess to answer my own question, it would be because HBO is the more lucrative or widely sought after streaming platform or just platform in general. Who knows when they're going to slow down? It doesn't seem like anytime soon. They also just apparently launched their own beer, which my friend was telling me they homebrew at their office in Brooklyn. Then they sent to some place to can and distribute it. So they're uh, really tackling all edges of the market. It's just funny because at least living in Brooklyn, I know that Vice's content is kind of indie, but I think of them as being the big corporate megalith because their offices are everywhere. And like I regularly book jobs where I'm like, oh, yeah, the last guy got robbed by Vice. So now we're hiring new people. And like, yeah, every time I'm out to dinner with someone, someone at the table is like, I'm on this like two year contract advice. So like I mean, they're the fastest growing media company in the world while almost every other media company is shrinking. Yeah. So they're doing something they're doing. I mean, they're yeah, they're doing something right for sure. And coming to Amazon Prime Instant. Actually, you can watch it now. Instantly. Before sunrise and before sunset. (laughs) Can you watch it also before sunrise or before sunset? Yes. Actually, I was going to say that two-thirds of Richard Linklater's Before (laughs) Various Times of the Day trilogy is now on Amazon Instant. So if you're not familiar with it, the trilogy chronicles the European romance of a man and woman through three separate encounters in their life. The films move along chronologically with actual time. So while the first movie, Before Sunrise, came out in 1995, Before Sunset came out in, I think, 2003, the setting of the film itself took place nine years after the first film. And then Before Midnight, which came out in 2013, takes place 10 years after the second movie and I guess 19 years after the first movie. So it sounds like, a, I mean, a very Linklater movie in that sense, but I actually haven't seen it. And for some reason, everyone who talks about this movie in within the canon of Linklater's other movies, it seems to have a very special place for them. Um, it's, it really always seems to resonate with them. So I've been waiting for it to come to a streaming platform so I can watch it for free, and now I can, and you should too. Yeah, you absolutely should. They're amazing. Great. They're fantastic. They're like completely romantic and wonderful and complicated and intelligent. And and before sunset, they only shot at sunrise or sunset. The whole movie is these long Steadicam shots, and like literally they'd wake up and shoot sunrise, and then they would take a break all day and like hang out in Paris and eat (laughs) and rehearse, and then they would shoot through sunset, and then they'd go to dinner, no which is did. like really not a bad way to spend two no, weeks in yeah. Paris. Of course, that he would make three of those movies then, you know. Like, well, they only did the, the middle one like that. The first one and the last one shot like normal movies. Oh, okay. But well. the middle one, like they had peak, peak, the peak of Ethan Hawke's celebrity. Yeah. I think they were able to get away with like, we're only going to shoot like the prettiest times a day. Yeah. Coming to Netflix on October 7th is 13th, Ava DuVernay's new documentary, which opened the New York Film Festival last week. It's an in-depth look at the prison system in the U.S. and how it kind of uh, is a 
an offshoot or a product of the nation's history of racial inequality. Um, I actually went to a press conference with Ava DuVernay after the first screening um, at the festival, which was for press only, and I wrote about it on the site. Uh, This documentary was absolutely eviscerating. And, you know, I say in my post that we in the press, our job is to explain things. And so we are rarely at a loss for words. And this was one of the few screenings I've ever seen in my life where you could hear a pin drop after the screening. I mean, the crowd was completely like shocked into silence. This, of course, was before a big, loud uh, cheering and standing ovation. But really, right after the screening, the entire room full of like 500 press people was was absolutely floored. Um, And the press conference that DuVernay gave really gave some interesting insights into her filmmaking process. She talked about things like making decisions about the thousand hours of archival footage that she sorted through for the film. And it's really this kind of difficult archival footage from our country's history that make the film so poignant and powerful. Um, And she also talked about whether or not to use the graphic footage of of recent police shootings of unarmed citizens in the U.S., which did make it into the film. And she kind of talks about how it wasn't easy to decide whether or not to use them. It's a must-see documentary, and you can see it on Netflix on Friday. Moving on to theatrical, on Friday, The Birth of a Nation will be opening on Friday, October 7th. The champion of this year's Sundance Film Festival, Nate Parker's historical slavery drama, sold for a record $17.5 million to Fox Searchlight. After the festival, the film garnered a huge amount of buzz and was already being rumored for award season uh, push by many prominent media outlets. And then... Nate Parker's alleged rape case resurfaced, and the film has been rapidly sliding away in the public discourse. Much of the focus of late has been placed on the case and the character of the director himself and not on the film. Fifteen years after it was litigated in the courtroom, the case of Nate Parker is being relitigated in public. While attending Penn State in the late 1990s, Parker and his wrestling teammate Jean Celestin were accused of raping a female student. Parker was found not guilty, while Celestin was found guilty only to have the conviction overturned. Last Sunday, Parker appeared on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper to say he doesn't, quote, feel guilty about his actions the night of the alleged assault. This also, quote, at some point I have to say it. I was falsely accused. I went to court. I sat in trial. I was vindicated. I was proven innocent. I was vindicated, and I feel terrible that this woman isn't here. I feel terrible that her family had to deal with that, but... As I sit here, an apology is no. Uh, Of course, he's referencing the fact that the uh, uh, woman who accused him of rape uh, committed suicide recently. This is such a tricky story because it's a really important film. It's very timely. Everyone's been talking about it. You know, it, it actually dovetails nicely with DuVernay's film, 13th, because both of them deal with slavery in this country and the kind of long, long, long ramifications that that, you know, terrible period of our history has left behind. But it's this really tricky thing that I think I personally think about a lot. And we think about here uh, at No Film School about how do you can you or how do you separate the artist from from their work? I mean, in this case, you know, Charles mentioned that the other person who was accused of the rape, which, by the way, was a gang rape, not just any rape, but a gang rape on campus um, was convicted. And this guy is still close with Parker. Not only that, Celestine has a writing credit on the birth of a nation. So you really, you know, really can't sort of 
physically separate them. And Parker himself has publicly called it a dark period in his life and said that he's a changed man now. I mean, something went down there. Like, if if you're totally innocent, then what do you have to change from? And uh, it's tricky. Like, nobody's perfect. I guess we just we have to decide individually where we draw our personal lines. I mean, for me, like, not going to lie, I haven't seen a Woody Allen film since the allegations of sexual abuse of his adopted daughter came out. And and I, I think that's fair. This is also an area where we've changed so much as a society in the last 20 years. Uh, you know, I mean, for instance, even if he is innocent and it was just a dark period in his life because he was having one night stands and now he's committed to a partner and that seems dark to him, that that would be a reason why someone might say it was a dark period. But what's really interesting about this case is one of the reasons he was let off is that he had had a previous sexual encounter with the accuser, which is something that sort of in the 90s was still considered like, oh, well, because you've hooked up in the past, it must not have been assault. Whereas in 2016, I think we have a more evolved perspective that every individual encounter involves consent anew. And just because you hooked up with someone the week before doesn't mean you couldn't assault them now. So if the case were tried now, it might be very different. So it's not as simple as I went to court and they found me not guilty. I want to believe in American jurisprudence. I want to believe that you've been found innocent and you're totally clear. But as we've seen in America, the courts aren't great with rape cases. And Gene Celestin got off on appeal because the accuser didn't want to testify a second time, which is something I think we can really understand in a rape case, not wanting to go through that a second time. So it's a complicated issue. It's an issue where as a country, we're still evolving quite a bit how we deal with this legally. And and again, it seems like an important movie that I haven't seen and I don't want to detract from that movie. But you also can't deny that it impacts the way we perceive this movie. Yeah. And I want to thank you all for giving you know us a forum to bring up these issues and to discuss films that we think are important like this one and issues that we think are important around them. So, um, you know, we'd love for you to weigh in as well. And you're welcome to reach out to us anytime. It'll be interesting to see how this uh, story plays out with audiences and the award season around this film. On some lighter notes, uh, I'd like to give a couple of shout outs. Um, I don't know if you all saw it, but Refinery29 did this article uh, a couple weeks ago about what you should wear for the jobs you want. And one of them was film director. And it said that, I mean, it was flat out ridiculous. Like, it, it gave a sample outfit for what female directors might wear. Um, it included an $850 white silk shirt and what they called grandma heels for when you're toting around town. We have appreciated some of the things Refinery29 has done. They've actually done a lot to support indie filmmakers in recent years with some of their really high-quality online series. But this article was just too much. And so our friends over at Filmmaker Magazine did a response post and they basically published stories from a bunch of cool female filmmakers with pictures of themselves in the field and what they were actually wearing. Um, and included Lauren Wolkstein, Manette Louie, and me. So it's a really cool article. And uh, I recommend checking it out in Filmmaker Mag. Meanwhile, uh, we cover music videos and music video directors a bunch on No Film School. In fact, that's kind of John's purview. Um, and if you're into those posts, which you probably are because they're awesome, you got to check out my friend Daniel Ralston's new podcast series for MTV called Videohead. Daniel himself is a writer and filmmaker, and he interviews music video directors 
uh, on the podcast. I just listened to his awesome interview with Tamara Davis, who I love. She was one of Spike Jones's mentors. Highly recommend it when you've listened to every single episode of the No Film School podcast and you need something new. Definitely check out Videohead. And speaking of podcasts, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we are reintroducing the No Film School interview podcasts. So while Indie Film Weekly hits you every Thursday morning, the interview podcasts are going to be coming out every other Monday, including this coming Monday. You can check out John's interview with the director of Christine. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, as always, please check us out. Download us on iTunes. Just search for No Film School. Uh, rate us there as well. We love those five stars. You can check out the post associated with this podcast and get links to all the opportunities we talked about at nofilmschool.com, along with tons of other articles about the craft of filmmaking. And please stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Charles Hain on Twitter. John on Twitter is at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. That's Jim John Jim. And we are all at No Film School. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs>